Chapter 15, Part 5 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 15, Part 5. First Punic War of Dionysus. When his preparations were complete, Dionysus went forth to do what no Greek leader in Sicily had ever done before. He went forth, not merely to deliver Greek cities from Phoenician rule, but to conquer Phoenician Sicily itself. Marching along the south coast, he was hailed as a deliverer by the Greek dependencies of Carthage, both by the tributary towns Gela and Camarina and the subject town of Acragas. Thermot on the northern coast likewise joined him, and of the two Elemian towns, Eryx received his overtures, while Segesta remained faithful to her Punic mistress. At the head of a host, which for a Greek army seems immense, 80,000 foot, it is said, and more than 3,000 horse, Dionysus advanced to test his new siege engines on the walls of Moitia. This city, which now for the first and for the last time becomes the center of a memorable episode in history, was like the original Syracuse, an island town. But, Though it was joined to the mainland by a causeway, the town did not like Syracuse spread to the mainland. It was surrounded entirely by a wall, of which traces still remain, and the bay in which it lay was protected on the seaside by a long spit of land. The men of Moitia were determined to withstand the invader to the uttermost, and the first measure they took was to insulate themselves completely by breaking down the causeway which bound them to the mainland. Thus they hoped that Dionysus would have to trust entirely to his ships to conduct the siege, and that he would be unable to make use of his artillery. But they knew not the enterprise of Dionysus, nor the excellence of his engineer department. The tyrant was determined to assault the city from solid ground, and to bring his terrible engines close to the walls. He set the crews of his ships to the work of building a mole far greater than the causeway which the Moitians had destroyed. The ships themselves, which he did not destine to play any part in the business of the siege, he drew up on the northern coast of the bay. The mole of Dionysus at Moitia forestalls a more famous mole, which we shall hereafter see erected by a greater than Dionysus at another Phoenician island town, older and more illustrious than Moitia. While the mole was being built, Dionysus made expeditions in the neighborhood. He won over the Sissons from their Carthaginian allegiance, and he laid siege to Eleman, Segesta, and Campanian, Antella. Both these cities repelled his attacks, and leaving them under blockade, he returned to Moitia when the solid bridge was completed. In the meantime, Carthage was preparing an effort to rescue the menace city. She tried to cause a diversion by sending a few galleys to Syracuse, and some damage was caused to ships that were lying in the Great Harbor. But Dionysus was not to be diverted from his enterprise. He had doubtless foreseen such an attempt to lure him away, and knew that there was no real danger. Himilco, the Carthaginian general, seeing that Dionysus was immovable, sailed with a large force to Moitia, and entered the bay, with the purpose of destroying the Syracusan fleet, which was drawn up on the shore. Dionysus seems to have been taken by surprise. For whatever reason, he made no attempt to launch his galleys. He merely placed archers and slingers on those ships which would be first attacked. But he brought his army round to the peninsula which forms the western side of the bay, and on the shores of this strip of land he placed his new engines. The catapults hurled deadly volleys of stones upon Hamilco's ships, and the novelty of these crushing missiles, which they were quite unprepared to meet, utterly disconcerted the Punic sailors, and the Carthaginians retreated. Then Dionysus, who was no less ready to treat earth as water than to turn sea into land, laid wooden rollers across the neck of land which formed the northern side of the bay, 
and hauled his whole fleet into the open sea. But Hamilco did not tarry to give him battle there. He went back to Carthage, and the men of Moisha were left unaided to abide their fate. As the site of the island city required a special road of approach, so its architecture demanded a special device of assault. Since the space in the city was limited, its wealthy inhabitants had to seek dwelling room by raising high towers into the air, and to attack these towers, Dionysus constructed siege towers of corresponding heights, with six stories, which he moved up to near the walls and wheels. These wooden belfries, as they were called in the Middle Ages, were not a new invention, but they had never perhaps been built to such a height before. And it is not till the Macedonian age, which Dionysus in so many ways foreshadows, that they came into common use. It was a strange sight to see the battle waged in midair. The defenders of the stone towers had one advantage. They were able to damage some of the wooden towers of the enemy by lighted brands and pitch. But the arrangements of Dionysus were so well ordered that this device wrought little effect, and the Phoenicians could not stand on the wall which was swept by his catapults while the rams battered it below. Presently a breach was made, and the struggle began in earnest. The Moitians had no thought of surrender. Dauntless to the end, they defended their streets and houses inch by inch. Missiles rained on the heads of the Greeks, who thronged through, and each of the lofty houses had to be besieged like a miniature town. The wooden towers were wheeled within the walls. From their topmost stories, bridges were flung across to the upper stories of the houses, and in the face of the desperate inhabitants, the Greek soldiers rushed across these dizzy ways, often to be flung down into the street below. At night, the combat ceased. Both besiegers and besieged rested. The issue was indeed certain. For however bravely the Moitians might fight, they were far outnumbered. But day after day the fighting went on in the same way, and Moitia was not taken. The losses on the Greek side were great, and Dionysus became impatient. Accordingly he planned a night assault, which the Moitians did not look for, and this was successful. By means of ladders, a small band entered the part of the town which was still defended, and then admitted the rest of the army through a gate. There was a short and sharp struggle, which soon became a massacre. The Greeks had no thought of plunder. They thought only of vengeance. Now, for the first time, a Phoenician town had fallen into their hands, and they resolved to do it as the Phoenicians had done to Greek cities. They remembered how Hannibal had dealt with Hymera. At length, Dionysus stayed the slaughter, which was not to his mind, since every corpse was a captive less to be sold. Then the victors turned to spoil the city, and its wealth was abandoned to them, without any reserve. All the prisoners were sold into slavery, except some Greek mercenaries, whose treachery to the Hellenic cause was expiated by the death of crucifixion. A Sicil garrison was left in the captured city. After this achievement, the like of which had not been wrought before in Sicilian history, Dionysus retired for the winter to Syracuse. Next spring he marched forth again to press the siege of Segesta, which was still under blockade. In the meantime, the fall of Moitia had awakened Carthage into action. She saw that she must bestir herself if she was not to let her whole Sicilian dominion slip out of her hands. Hamilco was appointed Shafet and entrusted with the work of saving Punic Sicily. He collected a force, which seems to have been at least as large as that which Dionysus had brought into the field, and set sail with sealed orders for Panormus. A small portion of the armament was sunk by Leptines, brother of Dionysus, who was in command of the Syracusan fleet, but the main part disembarked in safety. And then events happen in rapid succession, which are hard to explain. Hamilco first gains possession of Eryx by treason. Then he marches to Moitia and captures it. And then Moitia is lost. Dionysus raises the siege of Segesta and returns to Syracuse. The loss of Eryx could not be provided against. But it is hard to discern why Dionysus should have made no attempt to relieve Moitia, whose capture had cost him so much the year before. 
or why he should have allowed the Carthaginian army to march from Panormus to Eryx and Moitia without attempting to intercept it. He could not have more effectually pressed the siege of Segesta than by dealing a decided check to Himilco. Not knowing the exact circumstances, not knowing even the number of the two armies, we can hardly judge his action. But it may be suspected that Dionysus was by nature a man who did not care to risk a pitched battle unless the advantage were distinctly on his own side. It is to be remembered that he won nearly all his successes by sieges and surprises, by diplomacy and craft, and that the names of his great military innovator is not associated with a single famous battle in the open field. When he had once allowed Moitia to be taken, his retreat is not surprising, for he had no base in the western part of the island, and we are told that his supplies were failing. He had now lost all that he had won in his first campaign. Moitia, however, was wiped out as a Phoenician city, though it was not to be a Greek or Sicil stronghold. Himilco, instead of restoring the old colony, founded a new city hard by to take its place. On the promontory of the island, which forms the south side of the Moitian Bay, arose the city of Lilybaeum, which was henceforth to be the great stronghold of Carthaginian power in the west of the island. The sea washed two sides of the town, and the walls of the other two sides were protected by enormous ditches cut in the rock. The history of Lilybaeum is the continuation of the history of Moitia, but it was not destined to be taken either by a Greek or a Roman besieger. Having driven the invader from Phoenician Sicily, and having laid the foundation of a new city, Himilco resolved to carry his arms into the lands of the enemy, and to attack Syracuse itself. But he did not go directly against Syracuse. Before he attempted that mighty fortress, he would try the easier task of capturing Messena. The fall of this city would be a grievous blow to Hellas, and it would be no mean vengeance for the fall of Moitia. The walls of Messena had been allowed to fall into decay, and the place was an easy prey for the Carthaginians. But the greater part of the inhabitants escaped into fortresses in the neighboring hills. The Carthaginian general had to wreak his vengeance on the stones. He raised the walls and the edifices, and the work was done so well that no man, we are told, would have recognized the site. If the triumphant demolition of the Sicilian city, which watched the strait, was a sore blow to the Hellenic cause, Himilco sought at the same moment to deal another blow to that cause by the foundation of a new Sicilian city in another place. It was his policy to cultivate the friendship of the Sicils, and to foment the dislike which they felt towards the lord of Syracuse. Dionysus, too, had sought to win influence over the native race, and we saw how he gave them the territory of Naxos. The Carthaginian general grasped at that idea of erecting a new town for these very Sicils of Naxos, on the heights of the Taurus, which rise above the old site. Such was the strange origin of the strong city of Torimenian with its two rock citadels, one of the fairest sites in Sicily. It was the second foundation of Himilco in the same year, and both his foundations were destined signally to prosper. Lilybaeum became more famous than Moitia, and Torimenian has had a greater place in history than Naxos. As a founder of cities, Himilco was a high title to fame. He was, like Dionysus, a creator as well as a destroyer. The creation of new cities and the destruction of old by Greeks and Phoenicians alike was a characteristic feature of this epoch. Dionysus was preparing in the meantime to protect Syracuse. He committed the command of the fleet, which appears to have been now about 200 strong, to his brother Leptine, and fleet and army together moved northward to Catane. In the waters near the shore of Catane, a naval battle was fought, and the Greek armament was defeated with great loss. It was indeed far outnumbered by the fleet of the Phoenicians, who also used their transport vessels as warships. But the cause of the disaster was the bad generalship of Leptines, who did not keep his ships together, 
The rout was witnessed by Dionysus from the shore, and it might have been retrieved by a victory on the land. Hamilco and his army had not yet arrived on the scene, for an eruption of Etna had made the direct road impassable and forced them to make a long detour. Dionysus again shrank from risking a battle, though the men of Sicily were eager to fight. He retreated to the walls of Syracuse. This city was the last bulwark of Greek Sicily, and with it the cause of Greek civilization was in jeopardy. It was a moment at which the Siciliots might well sue for help from their fellow Greeks, beyond the sea. Dionysus dispatched messages to Italy, to Corinth, and to Sparta, imploring urgently for succor. It was not long before the victorious Carthaginian fleet sailed into the Great Harbor, and the Carthaginian army encamped hard by, along the banks of the Anapus. The mass of the host encamped as well as it could in the swamp, but the general pitched his tent on the high ground of Polycna, within the precinct of the Olympian Zeus. This insult to the religion of Hellas was followed up by a more awful sacrilege when Hamilco pillaged the temple of Demeter and Kor on the southern slope of Epopoli. When the barbarians began to perish in the plague-stricken marsh, the pestilence was imputed to the divine vengeance for these acts of outrage. The besiegers must have sat for no brief space before the walls of Syracuse. The messengers of Dionysus had time to reach the Peloponnesus and return with Sikor, thirty ships under a Lacedonian admiral. Hamilco had time to build three forts to protect his army and his fleet, one near his own quarters at Polycna, one at Descan, on the western shore of the harbor, and one at Plamirian. After the arrival of the auxiliaries, the capture of a Punic corn ship was the occasion of a small naval combat in the harbor. Only a few of the Carthaginian ships were engaged, and the Syracusans were victorious. Within the town, there was deep dissatisfaction with Dionysus and his conduct of the war, and the citizens thought that they might reckon on the sympathy of their Peloponnesian allies with an attempt to cast off the tyrant's yoke. At an assembly, which the tyrant convened, the feeling of dissatisfaction broke openly forth, and the lord of Syracuse could not only read in the faces, but hear in the words of the citizens, the depth of their hatred. But the movement of the revolution was checked by the Peloponnesians, who said that their business was to help Dionysus against the Carthaginians, not to help the Syracusans against Dionysus. So the danger passed over. But the tyrant had a warning, and he put on winning manners and accorded popularity. The deadly airs of the swamp in the burning heat of summer were doing their work. The army of Hamilco was ravaged by pestilence. Soon the soldiers fell so fast that they could not be buried. The hour had now come for the men of the city to complete the destruction which their fens had begun. It was just such a case as called forth the energy and craft of the ruler of Syracuse, and showed him at his best. He devised his attack with great skill. Eighty galleys under Leptines and the Spartan captain were to attack the Carthaginian fleet, which was anchored off the shore of Descon. He himself led the land forces, marching by a roundabout road on a moonless night, and suddenly appeared at dawn on the west side of the Punic camp. He ordered his horsemen and a thousand mercenaries to attack the camp here. But the horsemen had secret commands to abandon the hired soldiers once they were in the thick of the fight and ride rapidly round to the east of the camp where the true attack was to be made. The attack on the west was only a feint to distract the attention of the enemy from the other side. And for this purpose, Dionysus sacrificed the lives of the hirelings whom he did not trust. The real attack on the east was made on the forts of Discon and Polycna. Descon was assailed by the horsemen along with a special force of triremes which had been sent across the bay. Dionysus himself went round to lead the attack on Polycna. The plan was carried out with perfect success. The thousand hirelings were cut to pieces, the forts were captured, and the victory on the land was crowned by the destruction of the Carthaginian fleet. The Syracusan galleys bore down upon the enemy, 
before they had time fully to man their vessels, much less to row well out to sea, and the beaks of the triremes crashed into the defenseless timber. There was slaughter but hardly a fight, and then the land troops, fresh from their victory, rushed down to the beach and set fire to the transports and all vessels which had not left the shore. A wild scene followed. The high wind propagated the flames, and the cables were burnt asunder, and the Bay of Descon was filled with drifting fire ships, while amid the waters, despairing swimmers were making for the shore. Fate had indeed delivered the barbarians into the hands of the Greeks, and the Greeks were determined to wreak their vengeance to the uttermost, and extirpate the destroyers of Messana. Dionysus had approved himself the successor of Gelen. The double victory of Descon was worthy to be set beside the victory of Himera, but Dionysus was not capable of absolute sincerity in the part he played as the champion of Hellas. He could not act to the end as a Syracusan patriot with singleness of heart. This was the fatality of his position as a tyrant. Conscious that his autocracy rested on unstable foundations, he fought against Carthage, but it was always with the resolve that the power of the Carthaginians should not be annihilated in Sicily. The Punic peril was a security for his tyranny by making him necessary to Syracuse. The Syracusans must look to him as their protector against the ever-present barbarian foe. This was another secret of tyranny discovered by Dionysus. The Punic subtlety of Himilco, enlightened by passages of the tyrant's past career, formed no doubt a shrewd idea of this side of his policy. The Carthaginians saw that his hope of safety lay in bargaining with Dionysus. Secret messages passed, and Dionysus agreed to allow Himilco, along with all those who were Carthaginian citizens, to sail away at night. In payment for this collusion, he received 300 talents. Dionysus recalled his reluctant army from their assault on the camp and left it in pieces for three days. On the fourth night, Hamilco set sail with 40 triremes, leaving his allies and his mercenaries to their fate. It was an act of desertion which was likely to repel mercenary soldiers from the Carthaginian service in the future, and this was doubtless foreseen by the crafty tyrant. But the squadron of fugitive triremes did not escape untouched. The noise of their oars as they sailed out of the harbor was detected by the Corinthian allies, and they gave the alarm to Dionysus. But Dionysus was purposely slow in his preparations to pursue, and the impatient Corinthians sailed out without his orders and sank some of the hindmost of the Punic vessels. Having connived at the escape of Himilco, the tyrant was energetic in dealing with the remnant of Himilco's host. The Sicil allies had escaped to their own homes, and only the mercenaries were left. These were slain or made slaves, with the exception of a band of strong and valiant Iberians, who were taken into the service of the tyrant. Thus ended the first struggle of Dionysus with Carthage, and it ended in a complete triumph for the Greek cause. The dominion of the African city was now circumscribed within its old western corner, and the greater part of the rest of Sicily was subject, directly or indirectly, to the rule of the lord of Syracuse. Both from Greek and from barbarian Sicily, a famous city had been blotted out. But Moitia had been revived in Lilybium, and Masana was soon to rise again upon her ruins. End of chapter 15, part 5. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 15, part 6. Second Punic War and Sicil Conquests of Dionysus. The equivocal policy of Dionysus and his hostilities to Carthage was manifested clearly enough in the course which he pursued after his great victory. It was the most favorable moment that had yet come in the struggle of centuries, for driving the barbarians out and making Sicily a Greek island from the eastern to the western shore. 
Carthage could not readily gather together such another armament as that which had been destroyed. No patriot leader who was devoted to the Greek cause, heart and soul, with singleness of aim, would have failed to follow up the great success by an invasion of western Sicily. But the preservation of his own precarious despotism was the guiding principle of Dionysus, and he saw in the barbarian corner of the island a palladium of his power. The next Punic War broke out five years later, and part of the meantime had been occupied by Dionysus and extending his power over the Sicils. He annexed to his dominion Morgantina, Cephalodian, and Henna itself. He made treaties with the tyrants of Agirion and Centuripa, and with other places, but among all the Sicil towns, that which it was most important for him to win was the new foundation of the Carthaginian on the heights of Taurus. He laid siege to Tarimenium in the depth of winter. Operations of war in the winter season are one of the features of the reign of Dionysus, which separate it from the habits of older Greece and link it to the age of the Macedonian monarchy. The tyrant himself led his men on a wild and moonless night up the steep ascent to the town. One of the citadels was taken, and the assailants entered the place. But the Syracusan band was outnumbered and surrounded. Six hundred were killed, and the rest were driven down the cliffs. Of these, Dionysus was one. He reached the bottom, barely alive, after the precipitous descent. In the course of the extension of his power, on the northern coast, Dionysus had advanced to the limits of the Phoenician corner, and had won possession, through domestic treachery, of Solus, the most easterly of the three Phoenician cities. Of the circumstances we know nothing, but the conquest would seem to have been rather a piece of luck than part of any deliberate plan of aggression on the part of the Greek tyrant. No treaty appears to have been concluded between Carthage and Syracuse after the defeat of Himilco, so that the capture of Solus was not a violation of the peace, but only an occasion for the reawakening of hostilities which had been permitted to sleep by tacit consent. At all events, it must have had something to do with the renewal of the war, a renewal for which our records assign no causes. At the opening of the Second War, we find a Carthaginian general commanding the Phoenician forces of the island but without any troops, so far as we know, from Africa. The general was Mago, who in the previous war had been commander of the fleet. His army was doubtless considerably inferior to the forces which Dionysus could muster. Certain it is that on this occasion Dionysus did not hesitate to give him battle, and did not fail to defeat him. Carthage saw that she must make a more vigorous effort, and she gave Mago a large army, 80,000 men, it is said, to retrieve his ill success. To meet the invader, Dionysus entered into a close league with the strongest Sicil power in the land, his fellow tyrant, Agirus of Agirion. This is a special feature of the Second Punic War. The cause of Europe is upheld by a federation of the two European powers of the island, Sicil and Greek. The Carthaginian army advanced into Sicil territory, seeking to win the Sicil towns, but Agirus and his men waged a most effectual manner of warfare, cutting off all the foraging parties of the enemy and thus starving them by degrees. This they were able to do from their knowledge of their native hills, but it seems that the Syracusans were dissatisfied with this slow method, which was thoroughly to the taste of Dionysus. What happened is not clear, but we learn that the Syracusans marched away from the camp, and that Dionysus replaced them by arming the slaves. Then the Greeks and the Sicils must have won some unrecorded success, or the Carthaginian host must have been already terribly deplenished. Then the Greeks and the Sicils must have won some unrecorded success, or the Carthaginian host must have been already terribly displenished by the want of the food, for we next find Mago suing for peace. This peace, although it is said to have been based on the treaty which Dionysus had made twelve years before, was in truth altogether different, for the parts of the two powers were reversed. 
all the Greek communities of Sicily were now placed under the direct or indirect power of Syracuse. The Carthaginian power was confined to the western corner. Nothing is said of Solus. It must have been now handed over to Carthage, if Mago had not already recovered it by arms. But the most striking provision of the treaty is that which placed the Sicils under the rule of Dionysus. Nothing is said of Agirium, and we are almost driven to wonder whether there was here any treachery to Agiris, of whom we hear nothing further. But there was a special clause touching Toromenium, and acting on this clause, Dionysus immediately took possession of the town, expelled the Sicils, and established the fortress of those mercenary settlements which were characteristic of his age. Such was the end of two Punic Wars, which were in truth rather but a single war broken by an interval of quiescence. End of chapter 15, part 6. Recording by Paul Sutton.